0: of Life and Life This is the third and final part of emotional intelligence So if you've listened to the first two, don't give up on me now We're on the home stretch So we're going to be dipping into the last five chapters of this book Plus one of the appendices So we're on to chapter 12, this is called The Family Crucible It's a low-key family tragedy Carl and Anne are showing their daughter Leslie, just five How to play a brand new video game But as Leslie starts to play, her parents' overly eager attempts to help her just seem to get in the way. Contradictory orders fly in every direction. To the right, to the right, stop, stop, stop! Anne, the mother urges, her voice growing more intent and anxious as Leslie, sucking on her lip and staring wide-eyed at the video screen, struggles to follow these directives. See, you're not lined up. Put it to the left, to the left! Carl, the girl's father, brusquely orders. Meanwhile Anne her eyes rolling upward in frustration, yells over his advice. Stop! Stop! Leslie, unable to please either her father or her mother, contorts her jaw in tension and blinks as her eyes fill with tears. Her parents start bickering, ignoring Leslie's tears. She's not moving the stick that much, Anne tells Carl, exasperated. As the tears start rolling down Leslie's cheeks, neither parent makes any move that indicates they notice or care. As Leslie raises her hand to wipe her eyes, Her father snaps, Okay, put your hand back on the stick. You want to get ready to shoot? Okay, put it over. And her mother barks, Okay, move it just a teeny bit. But by now, Leslie is sobbing softly, alone with her anguish. At such moments, children learn deep lessons. For Leslie, one conclusion from this painful exchange might well be that neither her parents nor anyone else, for that matter, cares about her feelings. When similar moments are repeated countless times over the course of childhood, they impart some of the most fundamental emotional messages of a lifetime, lessons that can determine a life course. Family life is our first school for emotional learning. In this intimate cauldron, we learn how to feel about ourselves and how others will react to our feelings, how to think about these feelings and what choices we have in reacting, how to read and express hopes and fears. This emotional schooling operates not just through the things that parents say and do directly to children, But also in the models they offer for handling their own feelings and those that pass between husband and wife. Some parents are gifted emotional teachers, others atrocious. There are hundreds of studies showing that how parents treat their children, whether with harsh discipline or empathic understanding, with indifference or warmth and so on, has deep and lasting consequences for the child's emotional life. Only recently though have there been hard data showing that having emotionally intelligent parents is itself of enormous benefit to a child. The ways a couple handles the feelings between them, in addition to their direct dealings with a child, impart powerful lessons to their children, who are astute learners, attuned to the subtlest emotional exchanges in the family. When research teams led by Carol Hooven and John Gottman at the University of Washington did a microanalysis of interactions in couples on how the parents handled their children, they found that those couples who were more emotionally competent in their marriage were also the most effective in helping their children with their emotional ups and downs. Some mothers and fathers were like Anne and Carl, overbearing, losing patience with their child's ineptness, raising their voices in disgust or exasperation, some even putting their child down as stupid, in short, falling prey to the same tendencies towards contempt and disgust that eat away at a marriage. Others, however, were patient with their child's errors, helping the child figure the game out in his or her own way, rather than imposing the parent's will. The video game session was a surprisingly powerful barometer of the parent's emotional style. The three most common emotionally inept parenting styles proved to be 1. Ignoring feelings altogether. Such parents treat a child's emotional upset as trivial or a bother, something they should wait to blow over. They fail to use emotional moments as a chance to get closer to the child or to help the child learn lessons in emotional competence. 2. Being too laissez-faire. These parents notice how a child feels, but hold that however a child handles the emotional storm is fine, even, say, hitting. Like those who ignore a child's feelings, these parents rarely step in to try to show their child an alternative emotional response. They try to soothe all upsets and will, for instance, use bargaining and bribes to get their child to stop being sad or angry. 3. Being contemptuous, showing no respect for how the child feels. Such parents are typically disapproving, harsh in both their criticisms and their punishments. They might, for instance, forbid any display of the child's anger at all and become punitive at the least sign of irritability. These are the parents who angrily yell at a child who is trying to tell his side of the story. Don't you talk back to me. As I've said before, I don't have children myself, so I'm, I'm loath to judge, but I can just give you observations of things that I've seen. And as I said in the last part, it's clear that children pick up on everything you know, even before they know how to talk, even before they really understand language, they understand gestures. I recently saw the film Rocket Man, which of course is about Elton John, and I don't know how true to life it is. He was actually a consultant, so I think maybe the childhood stuff is true to life, but his mother was clearly, in the film anyway, far too immature to have a child, and um, she seemed to be a mixture of laissez-faire to some extent, and to the other extent, Like a child herself, almost. So, any problems he was having was just inconveniences to her. So, this is classic, I'm afraid. I've also seen parents offering their children money so that they behave. I'm just making observations, you know, um, there's no judgment here. You know, if any of this rings true for you, then I hope it's useful. On the positive side, there are parents who seize the opportunity of a child's upset to act as what amounts to an emotional coach or mentor. They take their child's feelings seriously enough to try to understand exactly what is upsetting them and to help the child find positive ways to soothe their feelings. For example, instead of hitting him, why don't you find a toy to play with on your own until you feel like playing with him again? In order for parents to be effective coaches in this way, they must have a fairly good grasp of the rudiments of emotional intelligence themselves. One of the basic emotional lessons for a child, for example, is how to distinguish among feelings. A father who is too tuned out of, say, his own sadness, cannot help his son understand the difference between grieving over a loss, feeling sad in a sad movie, and the sadness that arises when something bad happens to someone the child cares about. Beyond this distinction, there are more sophisticated insights, such as that anger is so often prompted by first feeling hurt. As children grow, the specific emotional lessons they are ready for, and in need of, shift As we saw in a previous chapter, the lessons in empathy begin in infancy, with parents who are tuned to their baby's feelings. Though such emotional skills are honed with friends through the years, emotionally adept parents can do much to help their children with each other basics of emotional intelligence, learning how to recognise, manage and harness their feelings, empathising and handling the feelings that arise in these relationships. The impact on children of such parenting is extraordinarily sweeping. The University of Washington team found that when parents are emotionally adept compared to those who handle feelings poorly, their children understandably get along better with, show more affection toward, and have less tension around their parents. But beyond that, these children also are better at handling their own emotions and more effective at soothing themselves when upset and get upset less often. The children are also more relaxed biologically, with lower levels of stress hormones and other physiological indicators of emotional arousal. Other advantages are social. These children are more popular with and better liked by their peers and are seen by their teachers as more socially skilled. Their parents and teachers alike rate these children as having fewer behavioural problems such as rudeness or aggressiveness. Finally, the benefits are cognitive. These children can pay attention better and so are more effective learners. Thus the payoff for children whose parents are emotionally adept is a surprising, almost astounding range of advantages across and beyond the spectrum of emotional intelligence. Now I want to make one more comment, another thing uh, I've observed with parents, and I am actually a teacher of course, I mostly teach adults but have taught children before, and one of the things that they really need is consistency. I'm not totally sure I buy this, but uh, an argument has been made that it might even be better for a parent to be emotionally distant all the time than for them to be distant a lot of the time, and then... Suddenly show a lot of affection, so have a complete lack of consistency again it's hard to know, but uh, with teachers as well, I remember we had a teacher at school who was just so unpredictable, and it's that thing of the good cop bad cop, so you may find that some parents play the good cop bad cop role either intentionally or just um instinctively you know good cop, bad cop is used by policemen to unsettle suspects are being interrogated so it's going to have the same effect on children or pupils in the school so just moving on to a a later paragraph this is part of a section called heart start which is obviously a play on head start the first opportunity for shaping the ingredients of emotional intelligence is in the earliest years though these capacities continue to form throughout the school years the emotional abilities children acquire in later life build on those of the earliest years And these abilities, as previously seen, are the essential foundation for all learning. A report from the National Centre for Clinical Infant Programmes makes the point that school success is not predicted by a child's fund of facts or a precocious ability to read, so much as by emotional and social measures. Being self-assured and interested, knowing what kind of behaviour is expected and how to rein in the impulse to misbehave. Being able to wait, to follow directions, to turn to teachers for help and expressing needs while getting along with other children. Almost all students who do poorly in school, says the report, lack one or more of these elements of emotional intelligence, regardless of whether they also have cognitive difficulties such as learning disabilities. The magnitude of the problem is not minor. In some states, close to one in five children have to repeat first grade, and then as the years go on, fall further behind their peers, becoming increasingly discouraged, resentful and disruptive. And as we've seen, all these things become a loop. They become a cycle. So you have to try and nip it in the bud as quickly as possible. Come back to the book. A child's readiness for school depends on the most basic of all knowledge, how to learn. The report lists the seven key ingredients of this crucial capacity, all related to emotional intelligence. I did say I was going to say EQ from now on, didn't I? But I've gone back to emotional intelligence. Anyway, number one, Confidence. A sense of control and mastery of one's body, behaviour and world. The child's sense that he is more likely than not to succeed at what he undertakes and that adults will be helpful. Number two, curiosity. The sense that finding out about things is positive and leads to pleasure. Number three, intentionality. The wish and capacity to have an impact and to act upon that with persistence. This is related to a sense of competence, of being effective. Four, self-control the ability to modulate and control one's own actions in age-appropriate ways, a sense of inner control. 5. Relatedness, the ability to engage with others based on the sense of being understood by and understanding others. 6. Capacity to communicate, the wish and ability to verbally exchange ideas, feelings and concepts with others. This is related to a sense of trust in others and of pleasure in engaging with others, including adults. Seven, cooperativeness, the ability to balance one's own needs with those of others in group activity. So interesting to look at that list. I mean, that for adults, uh, they sound like seven very good things to acquire. So confidence, curiosity, intentionality, self-control, relatedness, capacity to communicate, and cooperativeness. I'm finding reading this, in fact, a lot of the stuff that applies to children can equally apply to adults as well. And the book does show at various times that a lot of these things do stick with you for the rest of your life, with the caveat that things can also change. The next section in the same chapter is about why people become bullies. And I'm reading this here, and the next section as well is quite rough, really to help you to be less judgmental. Talk shows, for example, talk radio, I don't know if it's got better now, but... Back in the day when I used to listen to it for the sport, they would also have um, debates about current affairs, and whenever they talked about serial killers or any kind of criminals, it was always with this... The DJ always had a a tone of hate in his voice. I remember when um, the famous serial killer Peter Sutcliffe, known as Yorkshire Ripper, someone stabbed him, I think, with a biro from memory while he was in Broadmoor, and I just remember they had a whole phone-in about it on talk radio, and the, the DJ was just had this glee in his voice, and I just don't think that's useful at all. I'm very much in the camp of hate the act rather than the person, and what I'm going to read might give you some idea of why it happens. Anyway, so this next section is called How to Raise a Bully. Much can be learned about the lifelong effects of emotionally inept parenting, particularly its role in making children aggressive from longitudinal studies such as one of 870 children from upstate New York who were followed from the time they were eight until they were 30. The most belligerent among the children, those quickest to start fights and who habitually used force to get their way, were the most likely to have dropped out of school and by age 30 to have a record for crimes of violence. They also seemed to be handing down their propensity to violence. Their children were in grade school, just like the troublemakers their delinquent parent had been. There's the cycle again. There is a lesson in how aggressiveness is passed from generation to generation. Any inherited propensities aside, the troublemakers as grown ups acted in a way that made family life a school for aggression. As children, the troublemakers had parents who disciplined them with arbitrary, relentless severity. As parents, they repeated the pattern. This was true whether it had been the father or the mother who had been identified in childhood as highly aggressive. Aggressive little girls grew up to be just as arbitrary and harshly punitive when they became mothers as the aggressive boys were as fathers. And while they punished their children with special severity, they otherwise took little interest in their children's lives, in effect ignoring them much of the time. At the same time the parents offered these children a vivid and violent example of aggressiveness, a model the children took with them to school and to the playground and followed throughout life. The parents were not necessarily mean-spirited, nor did they fail to wish the best for their children. Rather, they seemed to be simply repeating the style of parenting that had been modelled for them by their own parents. In this model for violence, these children were disciplined capriciously. If their parents were in a bad mood, they would be severely punished. If their parents were in a good mood, they could get away with mayhem at home. Thus punishment came not so much because of what the child had done, but by virtue of how the parent felt. This is a recipe for feelings of worthlessness and helplessness and for the sense that threats are everywhere and may strike at any time. Seen in light of the home life that spawns it, such children's combative and defiant posture towards the world at large makes a certain sense, unfortunate though it remains. What is disheartening is how early these dispiriting lessons can be learned and how grim the costs for a child's emotional life can be. So there's the inconsistency that I was talking about um, just before. There's uh, lots of books about uh, Westerners who've ended up in... Thai jails. they used to call it the Bangkok Hilton. And one of the things that the guards would do to terrorise the prisoners was that they would um, go behind the back of the prisoner and start tapping them with a stick, very, very lightly, and then suddenly they would whack them very hard. So again, they're using this unpredictability, this sudden, this sudden outburst of violence as a essentially a torture weapon. So you can imagine what that's like for a young child. Next section is called abuse: the extinction of empathy. In the rough-and-tumble play of the daycare centre, Martin, just two and a half, brushed up against the little girl who inexplicably broke out crying. Martin reached for her hand, but as the sobbing girl moved away, Martin slapped her on the arm. As her tears continued, Martin looked away and yelled, Cut it out, cut it out, over and over, each time faster and louder. When Martin then made another attempt to pat her, again she resisted. This time Martin bared his teeth like a snarling dog, hissing at the sobbing girl. Once more, Martin started patting the crying girl, but the pats on the back quickly turned into pounding, and Martin went on hitting and hitting the poor little girl despite her screams. That disturbing encounter testifies to how abuse, being beaten repeatedly at the whim of a parent's moods, warps a child's natural bent towards empathy. Martin's bizarre, almost brutal response to his playmate's distress is typical of children like him, who have themselves been the victims of beatings and other physical abuse since their infancy. The response stands in stark contrast to toddler's usual sympathetic entreaties and attempts to console a crying playmate, as shown in a previous chapter. Martin's violent response to distress at the daycare centre may well mirror the lessons he learned at home about tears and anguish. Crying is met at first with a peremptory consoling gesture, but if it continues, the progression is from nasty looks and shouts, to hitting, to outright beating. Perhaps most troubling... Martin already seems to lack the most primitive sort of empathy, the instinct to stop aggression against someone who is hurt. At two and a half, he displays the budding moral impulses of a cruel and sadistic brute. Children like this, of course, treat others as they themselves have been treated. And the callousness of these abused children is simply a more extreme version of that seen in children whose parents are critical, threatening and harsh in their punishments. Such children seem to represent one end of a continuum of coldness that peaks with the brutality of the abused children. As they go on through life, they are, as a group, most likely to have cognitive difficulties in learning, more likely to be aggressive and unpopular with their peers, small wonder if their preschool toughness is a harbinger of the future, more prone to depression, and as adults, more likely to get in trouble with the law and commit more crimes of violence. What is perhaps most troubling about the abused toddlers is how early they seem to have learned to respond like miniature versions of their own abusive parents. But given the physical beatings they received as a sometimes daily diet, the emotional lessons are all too clear. Remember that it is in moments when passions run high or a crisis is upon us that the primitive proclivities of the brain's limbic centres take on a more dominant role. At such moments, the habits the emotional brain has learned over and over will dominate for better or worse. Seeing how the brain itself is shaped by brutality or by love suggests that childhood represents a special window of opportunity for emotional lessons. These battered children have had an early and steady diet of trauma. Perhaps the most instructive paradigm for understanding the emotional learning such abused children have undergone is in seeing how trauma can leave a lasting imprint on the brain and how even these savage imprints can be mended. So the book goes on to talk about the brain. I'm not going to read those parts but the lesson, I think I mentioned this earlier again is to say that when the brain changes the child is not going to be aware of it or as they become an adult and, you know, there have been endless documentaries about this and some fairly good commercial films as well and it appears that some of these bullies and people who become criminals have some awareness of their actions but some, perhaps the more psychopathic, as I was mentioning earlier, perhaps they don't. So it's not a case of just dismissing it or letting them off and saying, well, it's his brain. Society demands that justice is done. But, you know, it's tragic, really, to see this happening. And uh, I mentioned Gabon Maté earlier. He worked with severe drug addicts in Vancouver. And uh, I really am going to get round to reading one or more of his books, but I've listened to hours and hours of his lectures he's just fantastic and he said you know people take heroin for example all the propaganda tells you that heroin addicts are to be looked down upon but gabo mate said that all of them to a person you know most of the female heroin addicts had been either physically or sexually abused a lot of them had been raped and the male ones had been subject to violence dr james gilligan wrote an amazing book called on violence and he's got lots of lectures online. And just on the heroin um, thing, it's a bit of a side note really, but my auntie recently died. I think she was in her late 70s. And in the last two or three days of her life, she was on diamorphine, which uh, is the original name for heroin. Heroin was actually a brand name that it was given. And she was high as a kite for the last few days of her life, which was a nice thought, I suppose. But uh, interesting that, you know, in that situation, heroin was perfectly acceptable. And that is a debate for another day. I'm I'm sure to do an episode on drugs at some point in the future. Chapter 13 is called Trauma and Emotional Relearning. I've been doing lots of research on the Vietnam War because, in fact, the next episode of Life and Life Only is going to be an interview, which I haven't recorded yet. But I can already tell it's going to be amazing because I've listened to the gentleman talking on previous podcasts and he's got some incredible stuff about Vietnam and about the CIA and about how the world really works. So that's going to be The Outer Truth, episode 14, maybe a 2 That we'll see. But for now, we're still on Inner Truth. And this next section is called PTSD as a Limbic Disorder. The reason I mention Vietnam is because obviously PTSD is a huge part of war. But they talk about different types of it in the book. It's not just war, it could be any traumatic event. PTSD, of course, was originally called shell shock in the first world war, which of course referred to the shells, the grenades, and uh, as George Carlin famously said, he had some great routines on how words become euphemisms that don't make them sound quite as bad. I think shell shot became battle fatigue, which just sounds like you'd be running around for a long time, or, and then it became PTSD, anyway. So it had been months since a huge earthquake shook her out of bed and sent her yelling in panic through the darkened house to find her four-year-old son. They huddled for hours in the Los Angeles night, cold under a protective doorway, pinned there without food, water or light, while wave after wave of aftershocks tumbled the ground beneath them. Now, months later, she had largely recovered from the ready panic that gripped her for the first few days afterwards, when a door slamming could start her shivering with fear. The one lingering symptom was her inability to sleep a problem that struck only on those nights her husband was away, as he had been the night of the quake. The main symptoms of such learned fearfulness, including the most intense kind, PTSD, can be accounted for by changes in the limbic circuitry focusing on the amygdala. And then they go on to talk about some pretty technical language to do with the brain. And there's a quote from Dr. Charles Nemeroff, a Duke University psychiatrist, who says, Too much CRF, CRF is the the main stress hormone that the body secretes to mobilise the emergency fight or flight response which is the um, thousands or million years old response that we have to periods of great stress back in the day if you you spotted a saber-toothed tiger for example you would have the option of fighting it off or taking flight as you can imagine with a saber-toothed tiger I think the latter option is probably the better one although you're probably going to be in trouble either way anyway So too much CRF makes you overreact. For example, if you're a Vietnam vet with PTSD and a car backfires at the mall parking lot, it's the triggering of CRF that floods you with the same feelings as in the original trauma. You start sweating, you're scared, you have chills and the shakes, you may have flashbacks. In people who hypersecrete CRF, the startle response is overreactive. For example, if you sneak up behind most people and suddenly clap your hands, you'll see a startled jump the first time, but not by the third or fourth repetition. However, people with too much CRF don't habituate. They'll respond as much to the fourth clap as to the first. Now, when I was a child in the 80s, there was a famous single called 19 by Paul Hardcastle, and that was about the Vietnam War, and in fact, that was my first real exposure to anything about that war, and famously the voiceover that was used on the record, which was a voiceover from the 60s or 70s, I imagine said um, years after leaving Vietnam, the soldiers are still fighting the Vietnam War. So arguably it stays with you forever. I suppose it can be regulated, it can be controlled. So continuing, with PTSD, endorphin changes add a new dimension to the neural mix triggered by re-exposure to trauma and numbing of certain feelings. This appears to explain a set of negative psychological symptoms long noted in PTSD. anhedonia, the inability to feel pleasure, and a general emotional numbness, a sense of being cut off from life or from concern about others' feelings. Those close to such people may experience this indifference as a lack of empathy. Another possible effect may be disassociation, including the inability to remember crucial minutes, hours or even days of the traumatic event. The neural changes of PTSD also seem to make a person more susceptible to further traumatising. A number of studies with animals have found that when they were exposed even to mild stress when young, they were far more vulnerable than unstressed animals to trauma-induced brain changes later in life, suggesting the urgent need to treat children who have PTSD. And PTSD, again, uh, we, we tend to associate it with things like war, but the children that we were talking about in the last chapter you know being subjected to lots and lots of abuse i mean they're going to be suffering from it as well so as i said earlier it's got to be treated as early it's got to be recognized and treated as early as possible this seems a reason that exposed to the same catastrophe one person goes on to develop ptsd and another does not the amygdala is primed to find danger and when life presents it once again with real danger its alarm rises to a higher pitch All these neural changes offer short-term advantages for dealing with the grim and dire emergencies that prompt them. Under duress it is adaptive to be highly vigilant, aroused, ready for anything, impervious to pain, the body primed for sustained physical demands, and, for the moment, indifferent to what might otherwise be intensely disturbing events. These short-term advantages, however, become lasting problems when the brain changes so that they become predispositions, like a car stuck in perpetual high gear. When the amygdala and its connected brain regions take on a new set point during a moment of intense trauma, this change in excitability, this heightened readiness to trigger a neural hijacking, means all of life is on the verge of becoming an emergency, and even an innocent moment is susceptible to an explosion of fear run amok. So again, let's get to the positive side of this. Emotional relearning. Such traumatic memories seem to remain as fixtures in brain function because they interfere with subsequent learning – specifically with relearning a more normal response to these traumatising events. Fear conditioning is the name psychologists use for the process whereby something that is not in the least threatening becomes dreaded, as it is associated in someone's mind with something frightening. Ordinarily, when someone learns to be frightened by something through fear conditioning, the fear subsides with time. This seems to happen through a natural relearning, as the feared object is encountered again in the absence of anything truly scary. Thus a child who acquires a fear of dogs because of being chased by a snarling German shepherd, gradually and naturally loses that fear, if, for example, they move next door to someone who owns a friendly shepherd, or spends time playing with a dog. In PTSD, spontaneous relearning fails to occur. This may be due to the brain changes of PTSD, which are so strong that, in effect, the amygdala hijacking occurs every time something even vaguely reminiscent of the original trauma comes along, strengthening the fear pathway. This means that there is never a time when what is feared is paired with a feeling of calm. The amygdala never relearns a more mild reaction. Extinction of the fear appears to involve an active learning process which is itself impaired in people with PTSD leading to the abnormal persistence of emotional memories. However, given the right experiences, even PTSD can lift. Strong emotional memories and the patterns of thought and reaction that they trigger can change with time. The original fear ingrained in the amygdala does not go away completely, rather the prefrontal cortex actively suppresses the amygdala's command to the rest of the brain to respond with fear. The next section is re-educating the emotional brain. One of the more encouraging findings about PTSD came from a study of Holocaust survivors, about three quarters of whom were found to have active PTSD symptoms even half a century later. The positive finding was that a quarter of the survivors who once had been troubled by such symptoms no longer had them, Somehow the natural events of their lives had counteracted the problem. Those who still had the symptoms showed evidence of the catecholamine-related brain changes typical of PTSD, but those who had recovered had no such changes. This finding and others like it hold out the promise that the brain changes in PTSD are not indelible, and that people can recover from even the most dire emotional imprinting, in short that the emotional circuitry can be re-educated. The good news then is that traumas as profound as those causing PTSD can heal, and that the route to such healing is through relearning. One way this emotional healing seems to occur spontaneously, at least in children, is by games which allow them to relive a trauma safely as play. This allows two avenues for healing. On the one hand, the memory repeats in a context of low anxiety, desensitising it and allowing a non-traumatised set of responses to become associated with it. Another route to healing is that in their minds children can magically give the tragedy another, better outcome. So yes, um, the lesson really, what they're trying to say there, is that um, if you relive the trauma in what is a safe environment, then uh, really you are reframing it as something that doesn't have to overwhelm you. While adults who've been through overwhelming trauma can suffer a psychic numbing, blocking out memory of or feeling about the catastrophe, children's psyches often handle it differently. They less often become numb to the trauma because they use fantasy, play and daydreams to recall and rethink their ordeals. Such voluntary replays of trauma seem to head off the need for damming them up in potent memories that can later burst through as flashbacks. If the trauma is minor, such as going to the dentist for a filling, just once or twice may be enough. But if it's overwhelming, a child needs endless repetitions, replaying the trauma over and over again in a grim, monotonous ritual. One way to get at the picture frozen in the amygdala is through art, which itself is a medium of the unconscious. The emotional brain is highly attuned to symbolic meanings and to the mode Freud called the primary process, the messages of metaphor, story, myth, the arts. This avenue is often used in treating traumatised children. Sometimes art can open the way for children to talk about a moment of horror that they would not dare speak of otherwise. So if you broaden that out to the arts... Then obviously writing, which I've done a lot of, is um, very, very therapeutic. Putting it down in words, or if you do have artistic skills, you know, painting a picture. Again, there is a great deal more in that chapter. But I'm going to move on to the next one. Chapter 14. This is a rather inspiring title. Temperament is not destiny. So given the idea that these things are not fixed. So the section I'm going to read is called Childhood, a Window of Opportunity. The human brain is by no means fully formed at birth. It continues to shape itself through life, with the most intense growth occurring during childhood. Children are born with many more neurons and their mature brain will retain. Through a process known as pruning, the brain actually loses the neuronal connections that are less used and forms strong connections in those synaptic circuits that have been utilised the most. Pruning, by doing away with extraneous synapses, Improves the signal-to-noise ratio in the brain by removing the cause of the noise. This process is constant and quick. Synaptic connections can form in a matter of hours or days. Experience, particularly in childhood, sculpts the brain. Psychotherapy, that is, systematic emotional relearning, stands as a case in point for the way experience can both change emotional patterns and shape the brain. The most dramatic demonstration comes from a study of people being treated for obsessive-compulsive disorder. One of the more common compulsions is hand washing, which can be done so often, even a 100 times in a day, that the person's skin starts to crack. PET scan studies show that obsessive compulsives have greater than normal activity in the prefrontal lobes. Half of the patients in the study received the standard drug treatment, fluoxetine, better known by the brand name Prozac, and half got behaviour therapy. During the therapy they were systematically exposed to the object of their obsession or compulsion without performing it. Patients with hand-washing compulsions were put at a sink, but not allowed to wash. At the same time, they learned to question the fears and dreads that spurred them on. For example, that failure to wash would mean they would get a disease and die. Gradually, through months of such sessions, the compulsions faded, just as they did with the medication. And I think that's very telling, you know. Take them to the sink, show them that when they don't wash their hands, nothing terrible happens. And I think really it's a case of just hammering that message that's what I'm getting from this book that um, you need endless repetitions of the positive reinforcement or the positive reframing of the situation the remarkable finding though was a PET scan test showing that the behaviour therapy patients had a significant decrease in the activity of a key part of the emotional brain the Cordate nucleus apologies for butchering all these names that's C-A-U-D-A-T-E nucleus as did the patients successfully treated with Prozac. Their experience had changed brain function and relieved symptoms as effectively as a medication. So I don't know whether in 1995 that was a remarkable finding. I think nowadays there's definitely been a shift where people are seeing that there are alternatives to medication. As I said earlier, I'm not against medication per se, but uh, behavioral therapy, it seems, is just as effective. Next section is called Crucial Windows. Of all species, we humans take the longest for our brains to fully mature. While each area of the brain develops at a different rate during childhood, the onset of puberty marks one of the most sweeping periods of pruning throughout the brain. Several brain areas critical for emotional life are among the slowest to mature. While the sensory areas mature during early childhood and the limbic system by puberty, the frontal lobes, seat of emotional self-control, understanding and artful response, continue to develop into late adolescence, Until somewhere between 16 and 18 years of age. So there we go, you know, it works to our advantage. There's time to reverse any damage. The habits of emotional management that are repeated over and over again during childhood and the teenage years will themselves help mold this circuitry. This makes childhood a crucial window of opportunity for shaping lifelong emotional propensities. Habits acquired in childhood become set in the basic synaptic wiring of neural architecture and are harder to change later in life. Given the importance of the prefrontal lobes for managing emotion, the very long window for synaptic sculpting in this brain region may well mean that, in the grand design of the brain, a child's experience over the years can mould lasting connections in the regulatory circuitry of the emotional brain. As we have seen, critical experiences include how dependable and responsive to the child's needs parents are, The opportunities and guidance a child has in learning to handle their own distress, sorry, Mr. Goldman, for correcting you, and control impulse and practice in empathy. By the same token, neglect or abuse, the misattunement of a self absorbed or indifferent parent, or brutal discipline can leave their imprint on the emotional circuitry. So, really, a reiteration of what we said earlier. To be sure, the brain remains plastic throughout life, though not to the spectacular extent seen in childhood. All learning implies a change in the brain, a strengthening of synaptic connections. The brain changes in patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder show that emotional habits are malleable throughout life, with some sustained effort, even at the neural level. What happens with the brain in PTSD, or in therapy for that matter, is an analogue of the effects all repeated or intense emotional experiences bring, for better or for worse. So the final part of the book is called Emotional Literacy, And we've reached the penultimate chapter, chapter 15, which is called The Cost of Emotional Illiteracy. Now, a book I'd like to recommend is Civilized to Death by Chris Ryan. He became famous a few years ago by writing a book called Sex at Dawn. He's also done a TED Talk, and he has a great podcast called Tangentially Speaking. And his book is about the negative aspects of our, quote-unquote, civilization, or modern civilization, I should say. And this is a section that concurs with that. It's called A Cost of Modernity, Rising Rates of Depression. These millennial years are ushering in an age of melancholy, just as the 20th century became an age of anxiety. International data show what seems to be a modern epidemic of depression, one that is spreading side by side with the adoption throughout the world of modern ways. Each successive generation worldwide since the opening of the century has lived with a higher risk than their parents of suffering a major depression, Not just sadness, but a paralysing listlessness, dejection and self-pity, and an overwhelming hopelessness over the course of life. And those episodes are beginning at earlier and earlier ages. Childhood depression, once virtually unknown, or at least unrecognized, is emerging as a fixture of the modern scene. Although the likelihood of becoming depressed rises with age, the greatest increases are among young people. For those born after 1955, the likelihood they will suffer a major depression at some point in life is in many countries three times or more greater than for their grandparents. Among Americans born before 1905, the rate of those having a major depression over a lifetime was just 1%. For those born since 1955, by age 24, about 6% have become depressed. For those born between 1945 and 1954, the chances of having had a major depression before age 34 are ten times greater than for those born between 1905 and 1914. And for each generation, the onset of a person's first episode of depression has tended to occur at an even earlier age. Now, I was talking earlier in this now epic (laughs) three-parter on emotional intelligence about the overuse of the word depression. Now, I'm going to assume there that they are talking about fairly serious depressions rather than depressive states. And those depressive states can often be cheated, said earlier, with the cheating of the moods watching some comedy or just having a good chat with somebody. Martin Seligman, the University of Pennsylvania psychologist, proposed, for the last 30 or 40 years we've seen the ascendance of individualism and a waning of larger beliefs in religion and in supports from the community and extended family. That means a loss of resources that can buffer you against setbacks and failures. To the extent you see a failure as something that is lasting and which you magnify to taint everything in your life, you are prone to let a momentary defeat become a lasting source of hopelessness. But if you have a larger perspective, like a belief in God and an afterlife, and you lose your job, it's just a temporary defeat. Now just a quick word on um, religion and religious faith. I've been through a couple of stages with that. I think there's a feeling with a lot of people, they're very, very anti-religion, and now a lot of young people that I've spoken to, Said that they just see religion as synonymous with brainwashing, and I have huge problems with organised religion. But I think it's like a lot of things. If you watch Monty Python's Life of Brian, they weren't having a go at religion; they were having a go at followers—people who don't want to think for themselves but just need a messiah. I had a student, a lady in Spain, who was uh, had strong religious faith, and we had a long talk about it. And she gave a very convincing argument that it was it was something she felt. She didn't proselytise about it. I can tell you that some religious communities are wonderfully warm and they are a place where you can go for refuge. So um, I'm fully aware of how organised religion is used and has been very much linked with wars. I mean, you know, in England, what was it, or 500 years, the Protestants and Catholics fought about fairly small differences in their religious viewpoints at the end of the day. So anyway, I've come to believe more or to take more of the spiritual side of religion, really. And um, if you meditate, for example, you could be a meditator, but you don't have to be a Christian or a Catholic or a Muslim. It's almost a separate thing, really, but the connection is that you do get a sense that there is something bigger than you, and that's really all it is. There's no doubt that there's something therapeutic about that. Anyway, I don't really want to talk too long about subjects that I don't feel like I know a lot about, But as much as I love George Carlin, his routines about religion were most of the people of religious faith that I know. They don't believe in an old man wearing a nightie in the sky who loves them, but also strikes them down and judges them. That's my experience anyway. I'm going to move swiftly along before I start digging a hole. So, the next section is called The Course of Depression in the Young. That depression should not just be treated but prevented in children is clear from an alarming discovery. Even mild episodes of depression in a child can augur more severe episodes later in life. This challenges the old assumption that depression in childhood does not matter in the long run, since children supposedly grow out of it. Of course, every child gets sad from time to time. Childhood and adolescence are, like adulthood, times of occasional disappointments and losses large and small with the attendant grief. The need for prevention is not for these times, but for those children for whom sadness spirals downwards into a gloom that leaves them despairing, irritable and withdrawn, a far more severe melancholy. Among children whose depression was severe enough that they were referred for treatment, three quarters had a subsequent episode of severe depression, according to data collected by Maria Kovacs, a psychologist at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic in Pittsburgh. Kovacs studied children diagnosed with depression when they were as young as 8 years old, assessing them every few years until some were as old as 24. The children with major depression had episodes lasting around 11 months on average, though in one in six of them, it persisted for as long as 18 months. Mild depression, which began as early as age 5 in some children, was less incapacitating, but lasted far longer, an average of about 4 years, and Kovacs found... Children who have a minor depression are more likely to have it intensify into major depression, a so-called double depression. Those who develop this double depression are much more prone to suffer recurring episodes as the years go by. As children who had an episode of depression grew into adolescence and early adulthood, they suffered from depression or manic depressive disorder on average one year in three. Again, that goes on with more evidence from studies. But Let's get to the positive side. Short-circuiting depression. The good news, there is every sign that teaching children more productive ways of looking at their difficulties lowers their risk of depression. In a study of one Oregon high school, about one in four students had what psychologists call a low-level depression, not severe enough to say it was beyond ordinary unhappiness as yet. Some may have been in the early weeks or months of what was to become a more serious depression. In a special after-school class, 75 of the mildly depressed students learned to challenge the thinking patterns associated with depression, to become more adept at making friends, to get along better with their parents, and to engage in more social activities they found pleasant. By the end of the eight-week programme, 55% of the students had recovered from their mild depression, while only about a quarter of equally depressed students who were not in the programme had become to pull out of theirs. A year later, a quarter of those in the comparison group had gone on to fall into a major depression, as opposed to only 14% of students in the depression prevention programme. Though they lasted just eight sessions, the classes seemed to have cut the risk of depression in half. So as I was saying in part two, I think it was, yeah, it's very heartwarming that a lot of these schools are coming up with these things, but governments en masse really should be reading this book no matter which country they come from and implementing these it seems that it's uh, forward thinking smaller groups who are coming up with what is required so they talk about um, after school sessions where children learn basic emotional skills including handling disagreements thinking before acting and perhaps most important challenging the pessimistic beliefs associated with depression for example resolving to study harder after doing poorly on an exam instead of thinking, I'm just not smart enough. Learning these emotional skills at the cusp of adolescence is especially helpful. Seligman observes, These kids seem to be better at handling the routine teenage agonies of rejection. They seem to have learned this as a crucial window for risk of depression, just as they enter the teen years. And the lesson seems to persist and grow a bit stronger over the course of the years after they learn it, suggesting the kids are actually using it in their day-to-day lives. Other experts on childhood depression applaud the new programs. If you want to make a real difference for psychiatric illness like depression, you have to do something before the kids get sick in the first place. The real solution is a psychological inoculation. Now we come on to a topic that um, I said earlier I'm sure to cover on this podcast at some point. Drinking and drugs. Addiction as self-medication. Students at the local campus call it drinking to black. Binging on beer to the point of passing out. One of the techniques, attach a funnel to a garden hose so that a can of beer can be downed in about 10 seconds. The method is not an isolated oddity. One survey found that two-fifths of male college students down seven or more drinks at a time, while 11% call themselves heavy drinkers. Another term, of course, might be alcoholics. About half of college men and almost 40% of women have at least two binge-drinking episodes in a month. Experimentation with drugs and alcohol might seem a rite of passage for adolescents but this first taste can have long-lasting results for some. For most alcoholics and drug abusers, the beginnings of addiction can be traced to their teen years, though few of those who so experiment end up as alcoholics or drug abusers. By the time students leave school, over 90% have tried alcohol, yet only about 14% eventually become alcoholics. Of the millions of Americans who have experimented with cocaine, fewer than 5% became addicted. What makes the difference? To be sure, those living in high-crime neighbourhoods where crack is sold on the corner and the drug dealer is the most prominent local model of economic success are most at risk for substance abuse. Some may end up addicted through becoming small-time dealers themselves, others simply because of the easy access or a peer culture that glamorises drugs, a factor that heightens the risk of drug use in any neighbourhood, even, and perhaps especially, the most well-off. But still the question remains, of the pool of those exposed to those lures and pressures, and who go on to experiment which ones are most likely to end up with a lasting habit. One current scientific theory is that those who stay with a habit, becoming increasingly dependent on alcohol or drugs, are using those substances as a medication of sorts, a way to soothe feelings of anxiety, anger or depression. Through their early experimentation they hit upon a chemical fix, a way to calm the feelings of anxiety or melancholy that have tormented them. Thus, of several hundred seventh and 8th grade students tracked for two years, It was those who reported higher levels of emotional distress who subsequently went on to have the highest rates of substance abuse. This may explain why so many young people are able to experiment with drugs and drinking without becoming addicted, while others become dependent almost from the start. Those most vulnerable to addiction seem to find in the drug or alcohol an instant way to soothe emotions that have distressed them for years. So it's filling the gap, ladies and gentlemen. Gabo actually said that heroin is not addictive – That might seem a controversial statement but he said it's the need for heroin or it's the need that heroin is feeding which doesn't go away and that's why the addiction happens. I think the pattern of addiction is fairly clear where you need more of the drug to fill the hole, the law of diminishing returns as it's called. Anyway again really the theme of this podcast and to some extent this book is uh, don't judge because there are reasons why people do things and there's so much propaganda around drugs One of the most egregious myths that the propaganda just feeds is the idea that the majority of kids who take drugs are fallen victim to the dealer. So he's hanging around outside the school saying, oh, do you want a taste of this? Do you want a taste of that? And yes, I've never been a drug dealer, but I know, again, from reading and from talking to other people that it's a ruthless industry. We know, obviously, that drugs are spiked you know they're mixed with all kinds of things if you're lucky it'll be baby baby powder if not it'll be something extremely corrosive it's absolutely dreadful but really I think the misconception is that people who get addicted to drugs don't want to take drugs whereas you know if we were a bit more forward-thinking and a bit more honest we'd be saying that it comes from uh, a need unmet needs from childhood another huge tangent would be the war on drugs but just watch the documentary, The House We Live In. Fantastic documentary. That will tell you everything you need to know without me telling you. Certain emotional patterns seem to make people more likely to find emotional relief in one substance rather than another. For example, there are two emotional pathways to alcoholism. One starts with someone who is high-strung and anxious in childhood, who typically discovers as a teenager that alcohol will calm the anxiety. Very often they are children, usually sons of alcoholics, who themselves have turned to alcohol to soothe their nerves. One biological marker for this pattern is under-secretion of GABA, -A -A, a neurotransmitter that regulates anxiety. Too little GABA is experienced as a high level of tension. One study found that sons of alcoholic fathers had low levels of GABA and were highly anxious, but when they drank alcohol, their GABA levels rose as their anxiety fell. These sons of alcoholics drink to ease their tension, finding in alcohol a relaxation that they could not seem to get otherwise. Such people may be vulnerable to abusing sedatives as well as alcohol for the same anxiety reduction effect. This craving for calm seems to be an emotional marker of a genetic susceptibility to alcoholism. A study of 1,300 relatives of alcoholics found that the children of alcoholics who were most at risk for becoming alcoholics themselves were those who reported having chronically high levels of anxiety. Indeed, the researchers concluded that alcoholism develops in such people as self-medication of anxiety symptoms. The next section is called No More Wars, A Final Common Preventive Pathway. And they do talk about the war on drugs, which I was mentioned earlier. My focus on the place of emotional and social deficits is not to deny the role of other risk factors, such as growing up in a fragmented, abusive or chaotic family, or in an impoverished, crime and drug-ridden neighbourhood, Poverty itself delivers emotional blows to children. Poorer children at age five are already more fearful, anxious and sad than their better-off peers and have more behaviour problems such as frequent tantrums and destroying things, a trend that continues throughout the teen years. The press of poverty corrodes family life too. There tend to be fewer expressions of parental warmth, more depression in mothers who are often single and jobless and a greater reliance on harsh punishments such as yelling, hitting and physical threats but there is a role that emotional competence plays over and above family and economic forces. It may be decisive in determining the extent to which any given child or teenager is undone by these hardships, or finds a core of resilience to survive them. Long-term studies of hundreds of children brought up in poverty, in abusive families, or by a parent with severe mental illness, show that those who are resilient, even in the face of the most grinding hardships, tend to share key emotional skills. These include a winning sociability that draws people to them, self-confidence, an optimistic persistence in the face of failure and frustration, the ability to recover quickly from upsets, and an easy-going nature. Of course, many of these skills are innate, the luck of genes, but even qualities of temperament can change for the better, as we saw in a previous chapter. One line of intervention, of course, is political and economic, alleviating the poverty and other social conditions that breed these problems. But apart from these tactics, which seem to move ever lower on the social agenda, there is much that can be offered to children to help them grapple better with such debilitating hardships. Take the case of emotional disorders, afflictions that about one in two Americans experiences over the course of life. A study of a representative sample of 8,000 Americans found that 48% suffered from at least one psychiatric problem during their lifetime. Most severely affected with the 14% of people who developed three or more psychiatric problems at once. This group was the most troubled, accounting for 60% of all psychiatric disorders occurring at any one time, and 90% of the most severe and disabling ones. While they need intensive care now, the optimal approach would be, wherever possible, to prevent these problems in the first place. To be sure, not every mental disorder can be prevented, but there are some, and perhaps many, that can. Ronald Kessler, the University of Michigan sociologist, Told me, we need to intervene early in life. Take a young girl who has a social phobia in the 6th grade and starts drinking in junior high school to handle her social anxieties. By her late 20s, she's still fearful, has become both an alcohol and drug abuser and is depressed because her life is so messed up. The big question is, what could we have done earlier in her life to have headed off the whole downward spiral? So they go on to talk about this and... um, They reiterate some of these core emotional skills, which is really the core of this book. So self-awareness, identifying, expressing and managing feelings, impulse control and delaying gratification and handling stress and anxiety. A key ability in impulse control is knowing the difference between feelings and actions and learning to make better emotional decisions by first controlling the impulse to act, then identifying alternative actions and their consequences before acting. Many competences are interpersonal, reading social and emotional cues, listening, being able to resist negative influences, taking others' perspectives and understanding what behaviour is acceptable in a situation. These are among the core emotional and social skills for life, and include at least partial remedies for most, if not all, of the difficulties discussed in this chapter. The choice of specific problems these skills might inoculate against is nearly arbitrary, Similar cases for the role of emotional or social competences could have been made for, say, unwanted teen pregnancy or teen suicide. To be sure, the causes of all such problems are complex, interweaving different ratios of biological destiny, family dynamics, the politics of poverty and the culture of the streets. No single kind of intervention, including one targeting emotions, can claim to do the whole job. But to the degree emotional deficits add to a child's risk, and we have seen that they add a great deal, Attention must be paid to emotional remedies, not to the exclusion of other answers, but along with them. The final chapter of this book is called Schooling the Emotions. Starts with a quote from Erasmus, the main hope of a nation lies in the proper education of its youth. There's even a famous pop song that says, I believe the children are our future, and they certainly are. So we're on the home stretch here, and uh, just going to read a few things from this chapter. So again, this is referring to courses in emotional intelligence. There have been a handful of objective evaluations, the best of which compare students in these courses with equivalent students not taking them, with independent observers rating the children's behaviour. Pooling such assessments reveals a widespread benefit for children's emotional and social competence, for their behaviour in and out of the classroom, and for their ability to learn. And again, they give a list of some of the key attributes of emotional intelligence, and this is not just... a a reiteration of the ones I said earlier. So they're divided into groups. So emotional self-awareness, improvement in recognizing and naming own emotions, better able to understand the causes of feelings, recognizing the difference between feelings and actions, and then managing emotions, better frustration, tolerance, and anger management, fewer verbal put-downs, fights, and classroom disruptions, better able to express anger appropriately without fighting, Fewer suspensions and expulsions. Less aggressive or self-destructive behaviour. More positive feelings about self, school and family. Better at handling stress. Less loneliness and social anxiety. Then, harnessing emotions productively. More responsible. Better able to focus on the task at hand and pay attention. Less impulsive. More self-control. Improved scores and achievement tests. And then, empathy. Reading emotions. Better able to take another person's perspective Improved empathy and sensitivity to others' feelings Better at listening to others And the final group is handling relationships Increased ability to analyse and understand relationships Better at resolving conflicts and negotiating disagreements Better at solving problems in relationships More assertive and skilled at communicating More popular and outgoing, friendly and involved with peers More sought out by peers More concerned and considerate more pro-social and harmonious in groups, more sharing, cooperation and helpfulness, more democratic in dealing with others. Next section is character, morality and the arts of democracy. There is an old-fashioned word for the body of skills that emotional intelligence represents, character. Character, writes one social theorist, is the psychological muscle that moral conduct requires. And philosopher John Dewey saw that a moral education is most potent when lessons are taught to children in the course of real events not just as abstract lessons. If character development is a foundation of democratic societies, consider some of the ways emotional intelligence buttresses this foundation. The bedrock of character is self-discipline. The virtuous life, as philosophers since Aristotle have observed, is based on self-control. A related keystone of character is being able to motivate and guide oneself, whether in doing homework, finishing a job, or getting up in the morning. And as we have seen, the ability to defer gratification to control and channel one's urges to act is a basic emotional skill, one that in a former day was called will. We need to be in control of ourselves, our appetites, our passions, to do right by others. It takes will to keep emotion under the control of reason. Another recommendation I have is to look at the Stoics and Stoic philosophy. For example, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Check again I read recently and I found it quite repetitive and very rambling. But the key lessons were uh, very, very telling and very um, impactful. Being able to put aside one's self-centred focus and impulses as social benefits, it opens a way to empathy, to real listening, to taking another person's perspective. Empathy, as we have seen, leads to caring, altruism and compassion. Seeing things from another perspective breaks down biased stereotypes and so breeds tolerance and acceptance of differences. These capacities are ever more called on in our increasingly pluralistic society, allowing people to live together in mutual respect and creating the possibility of productive public discourse. These are basic arts of democracy. Right, the very end of the book, this is the final paragraph, again uh, referring to these EQ courses in schools. Despite high interest in emotional literacy among some educators, these courses are as yet rare. Most teachers, principals and parents simply do not know they exist, The best models are largely outside the education mainstream, in a handful of private schools and a few hundred public schools. Of course, no programme including this one is an answer to every problem, but given the crises we find ourselves and our children facing, and given the quantum of hope held out by courses in emotional literacy, we must ask ourselves, shouldn't we be teaching these most essential skills for life to every child, now more than ever, and if not now, when? And finally... This is Appendix B in the book. And we're kind of circling back here, because this is to do with the emotional mind and the rational mind, which was right at the beginning. Because it takes the rational mind a moment or two longer to register and respond than it does the emotional mind, the first impulse in an emotional situation is the hearts, not the heads. There is also a second kind of emotional reaction, slower than the quick response, which simmers and brews first in our thoughts before it leads to feeling. This second pathway to triggering emotions is more deliberate. And we're typically quite aware of the thoughts that lead to it. In this kind of emotional reaction, there is a more extended appraisal. Our thoughts, cognition, play the key role in determining what emotions will be roused. Once we make an appraisal, for example, that taxi driver is cheating me, or this baby is adorable, a fitting emotional response follows. In this slower sequence, more fully articulated thought precedes feeling. More complicated emotions, like embarrassment or apprehension over an upcoming exam, Follow this slower route, taking seconds or minutes to unfold. These are emotions that follow from thoughts. So essentially you've got an emotional response followed by a thought, followed by a slower emotional response. And the advice really, as it was right at the beginning, is to try and be aware of these emotions, to try and, um, if they're negative, to nip them in the bud. You know, there's something to be said for going with your gut feeling, as we said earlier. You know, that's what helped us survive for years and years. We went on instincts, and if you watch uh, animals, you see them do the same thing. So in conclusion, really, the rational mind, the fact that we can think, does make us top of the food chain, but uh, can also hold us back. So we need to strike a balance. So do I need to summarise? I feel like I've been summarising as I've been reading. So (laughs) find a recommendation for this book, and I hope you enjoyed this reading of uh, just a fraction, really, of the book Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. Now, just finally, I did qualify last year as a life coach. And uh, I'm in my mid-40s, by the way. So I think I can offer a fair amount of life experience, but also some freshly minted skills. So if you are interested in life coaching, the best thing to do would be to write to me at lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com. Of course, I encourage feedback on these episodes as well. And mostly, I just hope you got something out of it. I think I've offered a reasonable amount in these three episodes. Food for thought, as they say. Now, the next episode, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking more on the outer truth. It's going to be another radical change of direction. I hope this inner and outer truth idea is making some sense to you. I'm pretty happy with the way the podcast has been going. I think the content has been pretty solid. And really, there's, a, there's an emotional heart to this podcast. So this is as cathartic for me as hopefully it is for you. So final thank you for listening, especially if you got through the whole four and a half five hours however long it turned out to be and uh, i wish you all the best and i'll see you soon for another episode of life and life only so take care and